Good morning. It's been good to already be in the house of the Lord this morning. We came at 8.45 and prayed. and God had given me Psalm chapter 150. And that whole psalm is about praising Him. I pray that we have done that um, to His glorification and to our satisfaction this morning. One of my favorite writers says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. I pray that there's been a satisfying of your heart and will continue to be this morning as we read God's Word uh, and study God's Word this morning. But before I get into the message, just two announcements again uh, that need to be made. <clears throat> On the 24th through the, 24th through the 28th is VBS. Uh, VBS is not something we just do because we think we need to do it. VBS is an opportunity for us to be an outreach to both our community as a church and our community here at Walter Hill and beyond. And so I would pray to ask that you begin to pray with us and for our children and for our workers and for the parents, all that God would draw to us that we could minister the Gospel to them and that they would have repeated opportunities throughout that week to hear, to see, and ultimately respond to the good news of the Gospel. But I'd also challenge us to not just pray for our VBS, for all the VBSs in this community. It will take a citywide revival to see the move of God uh, in our city. And that doesn't and it just happen here at Powell's Chapel. It has to happen at every church that stands and proclaims the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So join me and our deacons as we pray not only for our VBS, but for our, all the VBSs here in our community. And for that matter, around the world this summer. Also, one last announcement. This is an important announcement. We've been uh, looking for people to fill the nominating committee. Uh, that, that vote goes on Wednesday night. As of right now, we have no one to fulfill the role of the nominating committee. This is a crucial uh, committee in the life of our church. Out of this committee, all other committees are set. So if we don't have an opportunity to set this committee, it's going to be very difficult for us to set all the other committees. Again, we don't just do committees for the sake of doing committees. We know that we're called by God to, uh, what it tells us in Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's my role to equip you, not just to equip myself, but to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is to get the Gospel to everyone in this church and beyond. And so every committee that we do uh, is focuses on that one thing. Yes, we have a uh, copy committee. That might sound silly to you. But we use our copy, our copy machine in gospel ways. It's not simply to make uh, copies. It's to get the gospel in printed form uh, to, to you and to everyone else. So please, continue to pray with us and for us to join this committee as we begin to set the rest of the committees for the fall. Uh, if you want to be a part of that committee that helps set the rest of the committee, see myself, Frank, or the deacons, we would love uh, to talk to you and just uh, kind of share with you the vision of that committee. Uh, again, it's not we don't do committees for the sake of committees. We do committees for the sake of Ephesians chapter 4 to make sure that God's people do the work of the ministry. It's not just my job or Frank's job. It's our job to equip you to then go and equip other people. And so that's what we um, are challenging you to do. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into the text here and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2-10. through 10. Would you pray with me this morning? 
God, You have been good and You've been kind to us already throughout this service. I pray, God, that You have been glorified in this place. If we've glorified You, we've praised You, I pray in our hearts that they've been stirred and they've been satisfied. That we would be satisfied in You. As we look at this text, the challenge for us has to be what satisfies our hearts. You're going to tell us clearly in this passage what ought to satisfy our hearts. So I pray for us as we hear and we see and we ultimately respond to Your Word, we would ask the question, where are we satisfied? I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We are in chapter 6, verse 2b through 10. We're coming to the end of this sweet letter. An amazing letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, his protege, who was a pastor at a local church in the city of Ephesus. And what Paul was doing with young Timothy was saying to Timothy, this is how the church ought to operate. This is how we're to fight for and with the Gospel in a lost city. If you know anything about the city of Ephesus, it was a very, very pagan city. And we'll see that in a moment. It was a very, very pagan city. And God, and it was a, one of the commercial cities in the known world. It would have been our New York City, so to speak. It's where all the commerce happened throughout the known world at that time. So all the world would come to Ephesus to both buy and say, tr- uh, buy and sell trade and then leave and come back. And so it was a, a commercial city that was a very pagan city. And so Paul, in his wisdom through the Holy Spirit, with the work of Timothy, planted a church in Ephesus because he knew that the Gospel could be spread afar when you plant a church in a city like this. So their hope was to plant a city in Ephesus that people from all over the known world would come and hear the Gospel and then take the Gospel and spread the Gospel message. We're here because of this letter written to young Timothy. just want you to know that. We are here We could trace our roots all the way back, if we could, all the way back to this church in Ephesus. Because it's where the Gospel came to Gentiles, and then Gentiles took the Gospel to other Gentiles. Unless you're a Jew, you are a Gentile. We can trace our roots from Powell's Chapel all the way back to this letter uh, that Paul wrote young Timothy. We've been looking at how the church is to operate. And now as we come near the end, we'll look again next week at what he says. But he's going to warn Timothy again about false teachers. In this small letter, six chapters, he writes about false teachers and being warned against false teachers four different times. We see that in verse 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1, verses 6 and 7, verse 20. And then again in chapter 4. He's teaching young Timothy. Hey, you've got to have a warning about false teachers because false teachers are going to come and take the Gospel and pollute the Gospel for their gain. So he's saying, be warned, young Timothy. Be on the alert. That's the message title. So I want to look at be on the alert for false teaching. I want to be on the alert for contentment. And finally, I want to be on the alert for discontentment or being discontent. So Paul says to young Timothy right out the gates, teach and urge these things. As I was studying this, I went back and was studying what is Paul saying? 
What are these things that Paul is telling young Timothy that he must do two things? He must preach them and do them. You can't just teach it. You gotta teach it, and in teaching you must then instruct and show the people how to do these things. Well, what's to do these things? To do these things is how to be a church that heralds the gospel message. And he says to them, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that are according to godliness. So he's saying, here's the warning. Be on the alert for false teaching. If you know anything about false teaching or counterfeit things, do you know how you would train someone to know things are counterfeit? When, if I would come up here and give you a counterfeit dollar bill or a real dollar bill, if a true person knew how to distinguish the two, they train someone not on the counterfeits. They train people, you have to know the true dollar bill. Know every detail about this one dollar bill because the counterfeits are endless. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy, if there's any teaching that's contrary to the Word of Christ Jesus, then it's counterfeit. And so I would ask you this first. Do you know the truth of God? For yourself. Be what Paul says. Be a Berean. Study and know and learn this apart from a 35-minute message on a Sunday morning or what any teacher, great teacher on a radio station says. You and I must know the truth for ourselves. Those are great supplements, but you and I must study the Word of God so that God through the Holy Spirit can illuminate your eyes and your hearts to the truth of God. Do you know the truth? Because I guarantee this, if you do not know the truth, you will not know the counterfeits. What's the truth of God? What is the teaching of Jesus? If you want to start anywhere with the teaching of Jesus, uh, this month, we put together a reading plan. It's called 30 Days with Jesus. So grab it on your way out. It's our way. Hey, what is Jesus telling us and how is He telling us to live? Because we want to know the truth of God so that we can distinguish from the lies of the enemy. See, Satan's too slick. He's not going to be blatantly false with false doctrine. He's he's really crafty. Remember how crafty he was in the garden in Chapter 3. Remember what he said? Did God really say that? What he used, even in the garden, were a few of God's words, but it wasn't the totality of God's word that he spoke to Eve in the garden. He picked and chooses, chooses what he wants to say for his own agenda. You see, what happened to Adam and Eve, Paul was warning Timothy it could happen, and it is happening in the church. And I'd warn us today, it is still happening in the church. How come you think that when you go on a mission trip to any of the poorest of the nations, they have a false doctrine? It's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says this, you come to Jesus and everything in your life goes well. You come to Jesus and you get rich. Well, of course, in a third world country that has no money, where do you think their heart's going to be drawn to? To get out of poverty. 
So they hear this gospel that's being preached about if I just come to Jesus, then everything changes and my pocketbooks get full. That's what Paul is saying later on in the text. He says they, the false teachers are being wolves with those who have depraved minds and are depraved of the truth. Well, people in a third world country, I'm not saying they're, they're ignorant because they don't have the truth. And so when they hear things that sound like the truth, they're going to gravitate to the truth and then they wonder, why is life not getting different? Because I've sold out to Jesus. Because that's not the true Gospel. The true Gospel says this in Mark and Luke chapter 9. It's going to be rough. Coming to Jesus is really, really tough. Like if you have walked and lived with Christ long enough, your life it's going to be really, really, really tough. And so if you think coming to Jesus, your life is going to get better, your marriage is going to get better, your finances are going to get better, that might not be true. But the truth is, over the long haul, when we stay in with Christ Jesus, things get better because our reality changes. Our circumstances may never change. But our reality changes. And what's in control changes that we'll get further into this text. So we must know the truth. Do we know what the true doctrine is that Christ has spoken to us? It is simply this. The true faith is this. The true teaching of the Gospel is this. That you and I were sinners apart from Christ Jesus. Like That's where it starts. That all of us in this room were born wicked apart from Christ Jesus. There's no goodness that was in any of us, the Word of God says. Now that's not nice to say. That's not easy to hear. That, that's not going to win a lot of people over. But all of us are wicked people. But in our wickedness, God had a plan. God loved us in spite of us, it tells us in Romans. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of anything we did, but because of His love relationship that He desired to have with us, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him shall not perish. That's what happens when you die apart from Christ. You will perish and spend eternity apart from Christ Jesus. You will face the wrath of God because of what you are apart from God. A heathen. Now, again, that, that's not going to fill pulpits. And that's not going to fill pews. And that's going to fill pocketbooks. But the truth is, I'm wicked, therefore my wickedness, I need a Savior. And God alone sent His Son to be my Savior. And what Jesus Christ did was something I could never do. And that's walk and live in perfect harmony with God the Father. For 33 and a half years, Christ never sinned. He was our sinless, blameless sacrifice. And what God says in Romans there has to be a payment for my sin. And the payment of sin requires blood. And not my blood, but Christ and Christ alone, His blood. That is what the cross is all about. The shedding of a perfect, spotless Lamb to cover sinners like us. Do I believe that today? Because if I believe that and trust that, that Christ's blood covered my sins, 
then therefore and only therefore do I get to stand in a holy courtroom not condemned, but declared righteous and justified. Not of anything I've done. Not of works of myself, but of the work and the finished work of Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection. That is the true Gospel. That is what Paul is urging and telling Timothy. You must teach these things. The wickedness of mankind, the holiness of God, the payment for sin, and that you're declared righteous before a holy God because of what Christ Jesus has done for you. And that is alone what we can stand our claim on today. That's our only hope in life and death is because of what Christ has done for us. Do we know what false teaching is? Do we know who the false teachers are? We see that in verse 4. Be on the alert for false teachings or false teachers. Well, you want to know what a false teacher looks like? Paul gives Timothy the order of what it looks like in verse 4. He says a false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Though he sounds like he knows everything, he knows nothing. Just listen to Joel Osteen for 30 minutes. You'll think, man, he's puffed up. He knows everything and nothing all at the same time. Listen to T.D. Jakes. Listen to Joyce Myers. I could go on and on with all the false teachers. Now they sound good from a pulpit. They draw large crowds. But they're not telling the people of God the truth of God and they're not telling sinners the truth of who they are and who God is. There's many, many, many false teachers out there. And it ought to terrify us. Because these men and women that are listening to these false teachers are going to put their hope and claim in what they're teaching and then stand before a holy God and say, I thought I knew you in Christ Jesus. Say, but I never knew you because you didn't know the truth. And it's only by the truth of God that you were set free. Not who you listen to. Do we know false teachers? They're puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. They're unhealthy cravings for controversy. They quarrel with words. They're envious. They lead to dissension. They're slanderous. And they're evil. Take that list of things and begin listening to whoever you're listening to on the radio, reading books. One of the guys I listened to early on in my ministry was a guy by the name of Rob Bell. Man, he was slick. I began to listen to some of the things he was teaching, and I began to wander. And one of his things was, you can't build, it's okay to take one brick out of a wall, was his analogy. And one of his bricks was, does it really matter if Jesus was born of a virgin or not? Well, on the surface, that sounds like, well, does it matter? Well, yeah, it matters, because the truth says he was born of a virgin. So, if you say he doesn't, and the truth says he does, then it really does matter. Now on the surface, Christ it could still be who he says he is, or could he not be? So we even got to know false doctrines. Because if false doctrines come in the church, the church will be destroyed. That is what Paul is urging and warning young Timothy with. And then he says this, other than it's getting hot in here, 
He says we must look at them and their false teaching. We must look at them at their character. But then we must look at their desires. Their corruption. We see that in verse 5. At the end, they are taking from people that are depraved in their mind, depraved with the truth, imagining that godliness is the means of gain. What, what Paul was saying there, he's, he's saying, hey, they're taking this truth and they're getting rich off of it. But it's not the truth at all. Like what Benny Hinn is teaching, I, I mean, any guy that has two jet planes, that's a bit ridiculous. But he's done that on the backs of poor people in the poorest of poorest of poorest nations. And so he looks to be godly because he has all this stuff. Stuff and godliness don't equal up. But the world around us thinks if I have all this stuff, then I must be blessed. God must have really blessed them because of all this stuff. Really? Like, is God blessing the pornography industry that's multi-billion industry? Like, we'd say no to that. Like, all the people that are making millions and millions of dollars throwing a football up and down a field. That's kind of ridiculous. But we say, oh, God must have blessed them. Must have blessed them and can throw baseball. Another one. This is probably going to get me in real trouble. I mean, how many people don't know how to make four left turns? It's called NASCAR. I can go do that, but they make millions of dollars driving a car. I lose millions of dollars driving a car and lose my religion on 24 when I drive. But our minds and what the world sells us is this. If I have a lot then I'm blessed a lot. If I'm blessed a lot, I must be godly. Like God must be really working in their life because they have all this stuff. That is not true. Some of the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of people are the most godliest of people. We'll get that to there in a minute. So the alert is for false teachings and false teachers. Then he says this, we must be on the alert for contentment. Just as much as we need to be on the alert for what's not true, we also need to be on the alert for what is true. Our minds can't just gravitate to the negative. They must also gravitate to the positive. So he says this, be on the alert. What are we to be on the alert for? But, be on the alert for godliness. What is godliness? Like when you have an alert, you're looking to something. Draws our attention to something. So as much as our attention needs to be drawn to false prophets, false teaching, false teachers, our minds must gravitate to what is true. Godliness is true. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, these things, we will be content. 
So where is our contentment this morning? Be on the alert for your contentment. He uses an old proverb that we know so well. You take nothing in, you take nothing out. It's what Job said after everything was taken from him. You know the story of Job. Job was a filthy rich man. He had more wealth than anyone in the country. He had more prosperity than anyone in the country. He had more godliness than anyone in the country. He was blameless in that country. And it says this at the end, when all of his livestock was taken, when all his sons and daughters' houses were wrecked, with them living inside of it, and he had nothing but his wife. And he says this in Job chapter 1, verse 20 and 22. For naked I come into the world, and naked I leave the world. We bring nothing into this world. And so my question to you is, where do you find your contentment? Do you find it in your shelter? Your clothes? Your job? Your wallet? Where's your contentment this morning? Because the truth is, all this stuff that we're gaining, one day we will lose all of it. It's what uh, one of the overseers of uh, Norman Rockefeller said in his last moments, uh, right after um, the last moments after they put Rockefeller in the ground. And he said to, they were asking the caregiver of Norman Rockefeller about his wealth and his prosperity. And he said, well, how much did he take with him? He was a rich, rich man. And the caregiver wisely said, he took nothing with him. He left everything behind. And so in our minds, we think we're gaining all this stuff. Well, there will be a day when you and I face eternity and we'll have nothing to show for. We don't go before a holy God and say, look at all I have. All that we go before a holy God with is our crowns of righteousness and godliness. But if we're not investing in godly things here, we will show up in heaven maybe with everything in the world and nothing in our hand to present to God the Father, the Holy Righteous One. Where is our contentment? He says we must find contentment in food and in clothing. And with these things you will be content. Remember what the Israelites complained in the wilderness about. They complained about contentment. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And God said, no, no, you you really don't want to go back to Egypt. And they said, no, 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 we really do because we, we had better lodging there, we had better food there, we had better provision there. And God said, I will provide for you. Then He begins to provide manna for them. Well, then they start complaining about the provision that God had for them. Then they start hoarding it. And then it starts getting maggots. And God is saying to them, I'll give you enough to be content for today. Just trust Me in it. You see, I think our contentment comes from a lack of trust that God will provide. It's what He says. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Verse 28.
He's telling them not to be anxious. He's saying who can add a single day to his life if he has any anxiety about what will happen to him. And then he says this in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory has not been arrayed like one of these. But God so clothed the fields. The grass of the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious in saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that's the pagans, seek after those things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. God knows your need for food. God knows your need for shelter. And God knows your need for clothes. God knows what you need. I guarantee it more than you know what you need. But our anxiety says, no, no, God doesn't know. So I've got to take things in my own control because I'm not going to trust God to provide for me. So where is our contentment? And then he says this in verse 33. But seek first what? The kingdom of God. And whose righteousness? Not mine. Not yours. But His righteousness. When I seek to glorify God, when I seek the holiness of God, when I seek the person and and the, the God of the universe, then it says, and then all these things. What things? Food, clothing, and shelter will be added unto me. They'll be given to me because God is going to care for me. Do I believe that God will take care of me? See, when I don't have contentment, my heart is really saying, I don't trust and believe that God will care for me. Therefore, I better care for myself. Do I believe that God will care for me? Where is my contentment this morning? Where is ours, this church's contentment this morning? I'll say it this way. You know, we have $400,000 in a bank account. Do we trust that $400,000 in that bank account more than we trust in the holiness and the care of God? Because that money can go in a hurry tomorrow. So what are we trusting, church? Our bank account or the God that provided what's in the bank account? You see, it's God who put that money in the bank account. Not any of us. Do we trust and believe that? I pray as a church, we never get content with fat pockets. That we would be desperate for God to show up. I have a mentor that used to always say this. If God doesn't show up, we're doomed. And my great fear is, church, do we feel that way? Like I know we think that way. But would we believe if that money wasn't in the bank account that God would still provide all of our needs? Where's our contentment? And then he goes and says this, be on the alert for discontentment. 
Turn back with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Here's what this passage is saying. You may be wealthy this morning. It's okay to be wealthy. If you're wealthy this morning, you have a big bank account. All of us really, if we're honest with ourselves, are wealthy. And we're really blessed beyond belief compared to the rest of the world. So all of us are wealthy. He's not saying it's not okay to be wealthy. He's saying to us, be cautious of the desire to be wealthy. Because when we have the desire to be wealthy, we fall into temptation, into a snare, into which many senseless and harmless desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. When people get greedy, they do very careless things to themselves and to other people. That's how Vegas makes all their money. Because they, 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 they feed on people that desire to get rich and to get rich quick. And so they're feeding off the poor to get rich. And so he's saying it's not, a, it's not bad to have money. It's, it's not okay to have the desire to get more money. Just be grateful what God has given to you is what he's saying. Because you'll fall into ruin and destruction. And then in verse 10, be on the alert. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It does not say in the passage that money is the root of all evil. That is one of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. That people would say, money is the root of all evil. No, 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 no. What Paul says to Timothy is, the desire and the what love for money is evil. Because what Paul is saying to Timothy when you start loving the things of the world rather than the giver of the things of the world, that is evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. It's what money does to our heart that's evil. Where are our desires? Is it for money or for the giver of the money? And I don't go to God because I want Him to give. I go to God simply because He is God and that is what I'm called to do. Whether He blesses me or doesn't bless me. And so if your whole thing here, and you hear me this morning, you think, man, I just got to love God, and then in loving God, He's going to bless me financially. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not, I do not believe that. But I do believe in what He says at the end, what He's been teaching Timothy is this, when you love God with everything, then you'll be blessed in all sorts of ways that are beyond your measure. You may never get a new car, a new house. But man, your godliness will be what's content to you. Because it's your relationship with God that matters first and foremost to you above anything else. It's what Jared just sang to us. Take the world, but give me Jesus. I've said it from here before. This world has everything for us, but it offers nothing for us in eternity. In closing, the application is this comes out of Dr. John MacArthur's commentary on this text. He gives us five things that we believers must walk away with when it comes to being on the alert 
and on the alert for what steers our hearts. Believers must know this, that God owns everything. That's what the psalmist says. My God owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. It's all His. That money you put in that plate just a few moments ago, that isn't your money. It's not my money. It's what God has given to me. And I'm called by God to give it back. He owns everything. It's all His. Do we believe that? The second thing is this. We must be believers who have a cheerful and grateful heart. Are you grateful for all that God has given to you? We are blessed beyond belief, House Chapel. Do we wake up? This is something Jenny tells me all the time. I need to work on my gratitude and my thankfulness. Do I have the grateful heart for what God has given to me? The third is this. We must distinguish distinguish what our wants and what are our needs. And so often my mind says to me, what I want is really what I need. That's just not the truth. God knows my needs. And God promised me He'll always supply my needs. He may never give me what I want, but He'll give me what I need. And the last one is this. We as believers must give sacrificially to the Lord. And I am not speaking about money. I'm talking about our time, our talent, our effort. God has blessed us in so many ways. We must live sacrificially with all that God has given to us. We must be like the poor widow that put two small pennies in the offering. Now you and I would say, oh, they're just two small pennies. But for her, it hurt to put those pennies in the plate. And I would ask you this. I ask myself this. When I give sacrificially, sacrificially, does it hurt? Or am I doing it out of obligation? Because Paul is warning young Timothy, do not be lovers of money. Do not be lovers of stuff. And be warned of false teachers that say, if you get more, you're blessed more. That is not true. Take warning, house chapel. Take heed to what God is calling us to do. Let us be on the alert for false teachers. Let us be on the alert for what makes us content. And then let us be on the alert for what draws our heart away from the Lord. Let us pray.